Amen. Hey, turn in your Bible if you have brought one with you to Acts 28, the last chapter of Acts. If you're a Christian in here, and I'm not assuming that all of you are, if you're not a Christian, this should still make sense to you. But if you're a Christian, I want you to think about the person that led you to see Jesus more clearly. Maybe it was a pastor preaching a lot like this. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a a church camp evangelist. I want you to think of that person just for a moment. Have you ever wondered about the one who led that person to the Lord? And what about the person before them, four generations back and five generations back? What does it look like? The person that led the person that led the person that led the person that led you to see Jesus. I mean, if you were to go backward up the spiritual ancestry tree, what, it, what did it look like 20 people ago? Think about that. When number 20 spoke with number 19 en route to you, what did their day look like? What was their mood? Were they rich? Were they poor? Were they tired? Were they broken? I don't know for me, but I know one thing. They weren't thinking about me. They didn't know me. They didn't, whether it was number 20 back or number five back, they didn't know that I was going to be a part of the picture several generations down the line. I mean, today you sit here and you are fruit of what other people have done, right, over the last several generations. People that were courageous, fluent in the gospel, obedient in what God has called us to do and and who to be. I just want you to think about that just for a moment. It's not something that we think about often, but you are here because of the result of missional activity of others, God's activity in his people, through his people, reaching people that eventually ends with you sitting here right now. It's really a beautiful picture when you think about it makes me wonder what it's going to look like 20 generations from now. I've led people to the Lord. I'm excited about that. In fact, it was a few summers ago that one of the young men I led to the Lord on the college campus was excited to tell me that he finally got to lead someone to the Lord. Now, that's only two generations, me leading someone to the Lord who led someone to the Lord, which was a pretty big deal because I was a grandpa, you know, in the Lord. And I was a grandpa. I was excited about that. But what about 20 more down the line? Would it be in this area? Would it be international? Would they even speak English as their primary language? What would that look like? I don't know. I think about this probably a little bit more than the average person, but I'm a little bit more nostalgic, I guess, and that feels nostalgic to me. I, I mean, this, this is my favorite Sunday, one of my favorite Sundays. Next Sunday is actually my favorite Sunday of the year, but this is one of my favorite Sundays of the year, and it's traditionally the lowest attended Sunday. I should have every reason to hate this Sunday and kind of loathe it, but I bring my A game. I'm excited about it because I am nostalgic, and I like tying off and finalizing something that you just traveled and worked really hard in, which is 2015. And I like looking forward into the next thing. I'm excited about what God is doing in this church. And I'm excited on this day that we get to finish the book of Acts. Now, if you're new here or you haven't come very often, we've spent the last nine months in the book of Acts, a long time. We finish it today on the last week of the year. To be honest with you, it's been my very favorite book of all the books of the Bible that we've gone through. I've been honored to go through it, and I'm very sad that it's ending today. I've enjoyed it. I'm already looking forward to the next book, though. But today... We look at this story ending with Paul investing in generations unseen. 
investing when he can't even see what is over his sight line, over the horizon, and things aren't going very well for him right now. Today in the book of Acts, we're going to see things finish abruptly, not very tidy. It just kind of stops. You almost expect a 29th chapter, but it doesn't. You know, we're used to movies and shows and stories kind of having nice, tidy endings in the end, and we don't get that with the book of Acts. It actually nuances the name of the network that we're associated with. I mean, if you've been around for any amount of time, you know that we're, we're a very excited and a very invested member of the Acts 29 network. We're one of the area lead here, so we recruit and we develop churches in East Tennessee to plant more church-planting churches. We're excited about it. The reason they call it Acts 29 is because they're envisioning what we know which is the churches that Paul planted back in the day, planted more churches, that planted more churches, that continued to plant and plant and plant until we have found ourselves here today looking at each other in 2015. It's beautiful. And so we're going to pick up our story today, 29 years after Easter, the first Easter. 29 years after Jesus was in a tomb, out of a tomb, with the Lord, the church starting, 29 years later, we find Paul. Paul at the very end of his recorded history with us. Now, this is interesting. If you include the time that he traveled incarcerated and in custody, he has spent the last two and a half years in custody. Right? Last two and a half years. And this is where we're going to pick it up in Acts 28. So look at verse 14. If you didn't bring a device with you, or if you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screen. And we're going to pick it up at the very end of the 14th verse. And so we came to Rome, which is where this has been driving for such a long time. Verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So if we're going to pause right there, they're actually not in Rome. They're 130 miles from Rome. They're ship docked, and they're kind of in the metro Rome area, but it's going to take them between five and seven days to walk across land to actually get to the heart of Rome. But 90 miles into this, 90 miles into the trip, they started seeing Christians, Roman Christians. These are Christians that Paul hasn't seen yet, right? Remember, this is a church that Paul wrote to. The book of Romans has already come. This is a church that he has loved from afar, but he's never actually seen. And this is the only time we see, really, in the book of Acts, this church in Rome even being mentioned. But word had gotten out that Paul was on his way to Rome, so Christians started leaking out and kind of peppering the, the processional way all the way from, I think, Puteoli all the way into Rome. Christians here, a community group there, a church here people there to greet him. And after two and a half years in custody, this would have been a great encouragement to him. Once he got to Rome, he was allowed to stay by himself with another guard in what would be today like house arrest. He'd have a little anklet tracker on, walk around. He'd have some freedom. He can go from room to room. It's not like he was chained to a dungeon wall, which is how a lot of people like to imagine it. That wasn't his existence in these last years, right? We're actually going to find out a little bit later on that he had to rent this place, that he was under house arrest out of his own money, which is a little odd because tax taxpayer dollars pay for it today. Back then, I guess the prisoners paid for it to the best we can find out. So let's look in verse 17, and we're going to continue. After three days, 
So he'd been there for three days after this trip. He called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Here's my main question, if I were just to pause for a second. Why on earth is he reaching out to the Jews right here? They're the ones causing him all the trouble. Why on earth is he spending any energy trying to talk to them, appeal to them? Doesn't he have enough on his plate? Seems to me that his world is swirling around him. He's got enough to think about, right? He's about to see Caesar. He's been in jail. He's got a lot going on. There's a lot on the line, and yet he is appealing to the same group of people that put him in this situation. I'm trying to put myself in Paul's shoes, I don't know that I would have clocked back in after three days. He just walked seven days. Had been on a ship after three shipwrecks, been beaten nearly to death a couple of times, been shamed out publicly. I don't know that I would have clocked in after three weeks. (laughs) It might have been three months. I might just be done. I might just retire and say, I've done enough. I've I've got enough to think about. There's enough right now in my own front yard to be concerned about. I don't need to be concerned about the Jews right now or even the Gentiles for that matter. This is it for me. Yet he does something very different. And not just different, he does it to the very people that put him in this position. It's interesting. Verse 21. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen." Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that is the book of Acts. The last two words, without hindrance, in the original Greek is actually one word. It means unchained. Unchained, unfettered, which is fitting here. Because with all the guards, 
with all the prison walls, with all the shackles, the gospel was advancing. The gospel wasn't chained. Paul was chained. And don't we still see this today? Find some of the most repressive governments, the ones, the least ones, or the ones that are least open to Christianity and Jesus right now, and a lot of them are exploding with the gospel. Because you could chain the, the preachers, you could chain the missionaries, but you can't chain the gospel. You just can't slow God down. And you'd think that this might even slow Paul down, but it doesn't. It's in this imprisonment that he writes Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and it looks like he plants a church on accident a little bit, which we're going to find out through the guards and the officials. He's getting a lot of work done. He's making the most of his time. It's going out with a bang. This was his first prison term between the years 61 and 63 AD. He writes all of these books. He's in there. He preaches to anyone who comes. They actually let him out of jail, right? He's out of jail for three years, and when he's out of jail, right after this, this is when he writes 1 Timothy and Titus. He goes and visits Colossae. Some believe that this is the, the actually same speck of time that he goes out to Spain. You can, uh, you know, on your own decide whether you believe that or not. It doesn't really matter. He was visiting and planting churches. But then in 66 AD, he was imprisoned again a second time in Rome. Not so easy this time. Not so easy. In fact, it's at this time that he writes 2 Timothy. So whenever you read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy together, you're going to notice a little bit of a difference in 2 Timothy. He sounds a little bit more like he's been suffering, a little bit more lonely, a little bit more disheartened. Even though he's encouraged in the Lord, you can tell a little bit of a mood change between 1 and 2. And that's because not even 9 to 12 months later, they, they, they kill him. He's a martyr. 67 AD, he finishes his course and he keeps the faith. This is the big idea I see as we finish this book and as we look at this passage. Paul continues to make use of his time even when his circumstances are poor. And he invests even when he can't see any return on his investment. He's making the best use of his time even though his circumstances and his setting not optimal. And he's investing where fruit most likely won't come back in time for him to see it. He was spending himself or what was left of himself, for God's glory. I think this is what's ultimately difficult for me. Maybe it's difficult for you. I think it's difficult for all of us, right? I think it's difficult for us to spend ourselves and invest in a direction where we probably won't see the fruit in our lifetime, especially when we have a lot swirling in our own universe, right? Especially when we're struggling and sinking and feeling chained and feeling trapped. It's hard to invest in others around us. It's difficult for me. We live in a cultural climate today, whether you're a Christian or not, we live in a cultural climate today where people just quit when things get a little tough. And instead of investing in others, we self-rescue. We invest in self. We live in a world where we will not invest beyond our sight line. We quit diets. We quit marriages. We quit workout plans, entrepreneurial ideas. We quit vows. We quit all kinds of things. It's just way too easy to look around and see our circumstances be difficult and say, I can't do anything except rescue myself right now. I definitely can't invest. I might invest, but there better be fruit coming quick. I mean, if that's a long project or I won't see any resolution in that, I'm not about it. I'm just not about it. We quit too early when it gets too hard, and we will not invest where we don't see. 
I think this is why stories appeal to you and me so much that show a person or a team or a force of some kind triumphing and not quitting when you'd expect them to quit or when everyone else is quitting, you know? I looked at the top 20 grossing movies worldwide of all time. 19 of the top 20 show a forced person or team not quitting. That's pretty much the punchline. They didn't quit. When you would expect them to quit, they didn't quit. I say 19 out of 20 because Minions found its way in the top 20 somehow, and I'm not sure that fits in. I'm not sure those little yellow things knew what they were doing the whole movie anyway, so they screwed my statistic up. Paul shows us how to make use of every opportunity and to invest beyond what he could see. I want to look at a passage. You don't have to turn there because it'll be up on the screen, but he wrote this when he was in jail in Rome. I thought it was fitting. So this very two-year moment that we're talking about, he wrote what we're about to read. In Philippians 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's speaking of that imprisonment in, in Rome. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Look what it's producing. That word advanced. The Greek word of it, if you were to go into what it would usually describe, it usually described a new trail being blazed before a military army. So a leader blazing something that is brand new. That's what Paul is saying. You would expect his missionary travels to kind of end, but he's actually saying it's not ending. We're actually finding new ways because these are people that he wouldn't normally have opportunities with, relationships with. You wouldn't normally see people that are just officials, high officials in the Roman government. The imperial guard would be new. Paul saw new ways the gospel could advance. This is what I want to know as I read this passage, because I'm not, I'm not any different than you. When I read this passage, I want to know how he does this, because it's the very opposite of what I want to do. It's the very opposite of what my flesh wants to do. I mean, if you're anything like me, when stuff starts happening all around me and I feel like I'm sinking a little bit and I feel a little bit shackled and things are becoming, I guess, complicated and I become more and more occupied with just the flurry and the static that is my life, the last thing I want to do is invest in a direction where I probably will never, ever see any resolution or come back to me. All I want to do is rescue myself. How did Paul do this? I think Paul knew that God's best work is done when everything seems bound and chained and sinking. Paul knew this was when God does his best stuff. It's what the gospel shows us. This is when God is truly mighty is when we are chained up and weak and banged up and dinged. This is when he shows himself glorious when we are cracked and disabled not able, not even willing sometimes. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians, and I still struggle with this passage. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. This is Paul. He says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We've already talked about this passage at length, even this year. No one really knows what the thorn is. There are some great theories out there. It was something he didn't want. We could just say it that way. He didn't want it. 
a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm not excited about this passage. I struggle with this because if it's true, and we know it is, that that means that whenever my life is spinning and spiraling and taking on water and there's weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, when all of that stuff is happening, there's still some investing for me to do. There's still some depositing for me to do because God is just getting ready to flex because this is when he does really cool work. But no one likes to build when they feel like they're fighting. No one really wants to build and construct things whenever they feel like they're sinking. I've done a ton of research and a ton of writing on how our bodies respond to stress, to stressors in our environment or our life, right? And you'll notice there's a bunch of physiological stresses that that kind of make you respond a certain way. You'll notice when someone jumps out and scares you, you know, with something. What what happens is is your knees will kind of break a little bit. You'll get in a defensive posture, and your your arms will naturally kind of go with a little bit of a, a bend in it, and your fists will clench. This is normal if something jumps out and scares you, right? You ever been around stressed out entrepreneurs or high amped guys? Their, their fists are always clenched. You won't find a photo of Theodore Roosevelt who was always amped up without clenched fists. Historians have always noticed that because he was always amped up. It's like this. Your blood is shunted away from your extremities towards your core. That's why your hands get all cold and clammy. Your eyes, your eyesight, you lose your peripheral vision. Your body responds to stress. Even your creativity responds It gets locked down when stress comes. You don't think creatively. You're not writing poems. You're not writing song lyrics. You're thinking, how do I escape the danger? No one, whenever they're being stressed out, thinks about how to build something. They always think about, how do I rescue myself? That's the way we were engineered by God. When you're in danger, figure out how to get out of danger. And biologically, he's created us to do that, right? No one likes fighting and building when they feel like they're sinking, This is why you don't creep up on wounded animals, right? Some of you have tried that. You catch a hoof in the mouth or something like that. If an animal is injured, they're thinking about how to protect themselves. They're not thinking about how to bond with you or nurture you or anything like that. It's not how it works. So when I read this passage in 2 Corinthians, I think to myself, God, why would you do this? I mean, come on. Seriously, I mean, is Paul not the MVP of this story? Obviously, it's God, but I'm saying boots on the ground. God is working through Paul more than he's working through a lot of these people. God, it would seem to me that you would want to make him effective and efficient and get stuff done, but you've given him a thorn. That seems odd that you would do that. Take the thorn away from the guy. He's asked you three times. Just take it away from him. But God's physics, they're different from ours, are they not? It was there so that he would be more effective, so that he would be perfect for mission. That thorn doesn't keep Paul from mission. 
it makes him perfect for mission. God's best work is through sinking and bound and trapped people. Not just Paul, but Jesus. This is where the gospel becomes very true for us. Jesus, trapped to a cross, shackled to a cross, bound to a cross, everything sinking. He had every reason to shrink back and not invest. He had every reason to just think about what was going on in his own world and to heck with everyone else. Not only that, not only him, but even the church, even the people around him, everything was spinning out of control. It's coming apart. Could you imagine? Some of you have imagined already being one of his disciples, thinking, what now? It's all out of control. I think he just died up there. Surely he didn't die. Yep, he's dead. And now they're going to put him in a tomb. And I thought things were going to go different. And everything is totally out of control. But it wasn't out of control, was it? It was never more in control. God's best work is done through sinking and bound and trapped people. Because Jesus was able to invest forward and build a bride to present at a better wedding someday. It was for the joy set before him that he did this. Listen, this wouldn't be a sermon to your heart if we did not look at why you and I both shrink back when everything starts flipping around us and going crazy. If we just looked at what Jesus did and we just looked at what Paul did, that would be a good teaching, but it wouldn't be a preaching at all. We'd just be speaking to your mind and not your will. But if we were to speak to your will, this would be the big question. Why is investing in every person in every moment so hard for us? Why is making use of the difficult moments when people around us so difficult for us? Why do we want to pull back and just rescue ourselves? I think the answer is very simple. I think our eyes look very quickly to rescuing ourselves because in those moments, we don't really believe that God is glorious or good or big. We, we just think he's clocked out. And if God is not fighting for me, then I got to fight for myself. I don't have time to build. I don't have time to construct. I don't have time to invest. I have time to rescue myself, and that's it. I go into emergency response mode. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is, is that God is not more in control when things are sinking than they are when they're not sinking. Sink, not sink. He's in control. Bleeding, not bleeding. He is in control. God is always in control. He was in control when the cross was there, when the cross had blood on it. He was in control when a dead king was shoved in a tomb. He is in control when a, a king comes out of the tomb. He is in control now. He is in control when you were sinking. He is in control on your good days. He is in control when you feel trapped and bound. He is in control when you feel great and free. He is in control. And he has proven it by the gospel for us. And if that is true, then we are free we are free to not protect ourselves. That's Adam, Adam's genetics in us. It's a part of our fallen nature to just believe that God is not about us at all and try to defend and fight for ourselves. That's part of our fallen nature. But because of the gospel, we are free to invest because we know that God is always in control. So when you find yourself sinking and chained, start looking around you. When things are spiraling and on fire, Look at the moment that you're in right then. Because God does his best work 
whenever things are crazy like that. There are actually three things I'm going to ask you to be ready for. It'll be up on the screen as well. Three things to be ready for whenever you feel chained and trapped, disadvantaged, and very tempted to protect yourself. One is be ready. Be ready for all occasions and before all people. All occasions and all people. Who is really chained to who in this story? I don't think Paul was chained to the guard. I think the guard was chained to Paul. Imagine what that would have been like, him clocking out and going home every day. The conversations between him and his wife, right? Every time I say hail Caesar to this guy, he says hail Jesus. He keeps talking about Jesus. It's killing me. Don't understand it. I mean, some of it's kind of provocative, and I actually like listening to it, but he just won't shut up about it. It's all he wants to talk about. I wonder what that looked like after two weeks, about two years. We have no reason to believe that he had more than one guard. No reason at all. Be ready. Be ready. Colossians verse 5 in chapter 4. And by the way, he wrote this when he was in Rome too. In a prison of a house chained to a guard, he writes this. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of the time. Who do you think he was talking about? He's saying, He's saying, walk in wisdom towards outsiders as he's chained to an outsider. He's writing this or dictating it while someone is chained to him. You could almost imagine him looking over at the guy right when he says this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Who are you chained to right now? Who is chained to you? Who's around you? What does that moment look like? Remember, you don't need to rescue yourself. Picture that person, how hard they are to reach, how unlikely they are in your mind to become a Christian because God's best work is done when you feel most chained and trapped and bound up. So hear me, whenever the kids are freaking out, totally freaking out, and there's been 16 notifications go off on your phone, but you wouldn't really know because you haven't even had time to look at them because you're on YouTube trying to figure out how to replace your garbage disposal, (laughs) but you're having a hard time because you haven't slept well in a week. That's when you're perfect for mission. It's crazy, isn't it? That's when you are perfect. Make use of every moment. Whenever you're at work and you don't feel like your boss appreciates your greater talent, and in all realistic, I mean, he ought to be working for you, right? You just hate your job overall anyway. Just hate the whole thing. You're perfect for mission. Make use of every moment. God will flex when you least expect it. When you feel like, I can't do anything for God right now because I'm so consumed with this. You're broke, you're weakened, you're cracked. God will make himself glorious, make himself mighty through your lack. Make the best use of your time. Be ready. Number two, be ready for those who have already rejected you because some will and some won't. We have this great passage in here. I'm so thankful for it because here you have Paul, the greatest preaching ministry on planet earth at the time that we know about, right? And some believe and some don't. There's about 40,000 Jews in Rome at this time, most scholars believe. That's a lot, right? 
but the best preaching ministry in the world's not getting the best feedback. It doesn't always work that way. Why does he do this? Why didn't he just skip the Jews? He, he would always do it anyway. I mean, we've been reading through the book of Acts. He'd go to a city, talk to the Jews. They'd give him the thumbs down. He'd break out, talk to the Gentiles, plant a church, move on to the next city. And he'd just be the same thing over and over again. Talk to the Jews. They'd laugh at him, mock him, hook some rocks at him. He'd go to the Gentiles, talk to them. They'd love it, plant a church, move on to the next city. Why is he not just, I mean, I would be thinking, Paul, can we just like fast forward this? We know what they're going to do. We know what they're going to do. This is what it says in Romans 9. I'm reading this out of the J.B. Phillips Bible. It's a, it's a paraphrase. Really, it's a translation. It's great, though. It was written by a, a really cool guy back in the 40s, I believe. So if you're into reading different versions of the Bible, I think he's done the New Testament and the wisdom literature. But J.B. Phillips, he says this, Before Christ and my own conscience, I assure you that I am speaking the plain truth when I say that there is something that makes me feel very depressed like a pain that never leaves me. It is the condition of my brothers and fellow Israelites, and I have actually reached the pitch of wishing myself cut off from Christ if it meant that they could be one for God. He loved these people. The people I would be so quick to pass over because they've already rejected me over and over again. I'd have moved around them, moved on. In fact, I would have been able to say, Paul, Let's just make it a stewardship issue. You only have so many minutes that you're going to be alive and breathing. Do you want to waste those minutes? Those are minutes that God gave you, Paul. Why would you waste them on these people? I would have tried to make a case. Because it's so much easier to talk to people who haven't rejected us than it is to talk to people who reject us repeatedly, isn't it? So much easier. You know, I was one of those people that rejected the gospel, rebuffed people, did this when the gospel was brought to me until I was able to engage it and become a Christian and see Jesus more clearly. I was one of those that rejected it. Some of you were as well. And if you've done any kind of missional living at all, if you've done any kind of evangelistic extension of the gospel to the culture in any way, you've been rejected. You've been rejected. Maybe half the time, maybe 80% of the time. And that's if your numbers are good, probably 80% of the time. We've all been rejected. How do you have passion for those same people? That aunt, whoever, that you've told about Jesus 38,000 times. That your neighbor that rolls his eyes. The coworker that changes the subject every single time. What do you do? Pray that God gives you the passion and the vigor that you had the very first time you spoke to them about Jesus. That's what Paul's doing here. Look at how much he loves his own nation, loves these people that have beat him, hurt him, and have cost him up to now almost five years in custody. Talk to them about Jesus. Then talk to them again about Jesus. Then talk, but Luke, that's not polite. It's not polite. It's loving, though. It's passionate and it's loving. Number three, be ready. Be ready to invest where you will never see a return. We are here today. I am here today because people invested where they wouldn't see a return. You know, back in the 1960s, there was a movement that swept across the country, started in California and kind of moved eastward. It's called the charismatic movement, right? 
charismatic movement would even start seeping in some of the mainline denominations. But it sowed the seeds, what I think more importantly, for what we know as the Jesus movement. The Jesus movement, also starting on the West Coast and sweeping eastward, also finding itself kind of in mainline denominations, would be more populated by younger people, college students predominantly, right? And they were missional. They were crazy about Jesus. That's where the term Jesus freak came from. That was meant as a pejorative term to be called a Jesus freak. It was like getting flipped off, I guess, in the church world. Now people kind of wear it as a badge. But it happened. So you would have like churches that were a Baptist church or a Methodist church have Jesus freaks start coming through the ranks. One of these Jesus freaks back in the 80s became a Christian and then decided to plant a church. He left Dallas and planted a church in West Texas. His name was Russ. Russ planted a church called Word of Life. It was a non-denominational, charismatic, missional church. He planted it in this old, cheesy motel. It's called the Sandpiper Inn. The kids were over in the pool table area with the bar, and he was kind of in the eating area of that motel back when that was the thing. It's on this street called Wall Street. There's nothing but pipe yards and old car dealerships and really good Mexican food. And that's about all you're going to find on that street. And you find the Sandpiper Inn, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew to where in 1995, 13 years later, it planted a church in Lubbock, Texas. Right? Planted a church that a year later, my wife would meet me in. Paula was actually the very first single person in this living room full of a core team. I would come a little bit later. This church would plant a church in Brandon, Florida, about 10 years later, Impact Church. And I would go and be a part of that church plant as well. We unsuccessfully planted a church in St. Petersburg, but Christians were made. We successfully planted a church in downtown Tampa out of that, and Christians were made. But just five years later, we would plant a church out of Tampa into West Knoxville and be Legacy Church. We begin in the living room to where we sit right now. I'm preaching to you because of a preacher in the Jesus movement that spoke to a young man in, in, in the late 70s and early 80s, a guy, a guy you'll never meet. And I wonder who preached to that guy. And who preached to that guy? Where these churches came from anyway? Before that Jesus movement ever found a, a mainline denominational church in Texas, that church came from the Northeast. The Northeast churches, they, they were planted from churches in England, which were planted from churches in the Mediterranean, just speaking broadly, big picture, all the way back to Paul. Churches that Paul and Peter and Apollos were, were planting and nurturing, having no idea who you are and who I am. What do you think it will look like? This all came by obedient Christians, not spectacular Christians, just obedient ones. That with their busy lives and Christmas and cleaning up old Christmas trees and taking down lights and work starting back up with all of these things, just being perfect for mission, making the best use of every moment and extending the gospel to those who desperately need it, both for their good and for God's glory. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to finish this. And I know that as I'm talking to you, some of you feel sinking right now and you feel like you're chained. Enough things were on fire to where you're having a hard time seeing outside of your realm. I'm just going to say quickly, you are perfect for mission. 
You are perfect for extending the gospel. You are perfect for it. I know you're weak. I know it's the last thing you want to think about. Be open to what God will do through you because he does brilliant things, spectacular things through those who are chained, bound, and weak. Some of you, you are investing in a direction where you've gotten consistent rejection, rejection after rejection, and some of you, your hearts are really starting to bleed over people. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to say the gospel in any other way that you've already said it. Some of you have actually started to give up on them. Well, it's obviously not going to be me. It's going to have to be somebody else that talks about Jesus because I've talked to him six or seven times. Pray that God gives you the passion to continually go back to the very same people that might even be persecuting you, laughing at you, mocking you, maligning your name. Pray that God gives you a compassion for them. And then some of you here, you might not even know Jesus. And all of this is semi-new to you. This message of the gospel that I bring, as you could tell, it's one that pervades and is consistent across a long scope of time. It's not something that we made up. It's not something we innovated. It's something that is very old, thought up in the brilliance and the architecture of God's mind himself as he has a will And he has a desire to redeem broken creation. And that includes you. That includes you. As broken as you are, as broken as you know that you are, God fixes what is broken. He fixes it. Today would be a day. Today would be a day that you would stop serving yourself. Today would be a day that you would stop being the king of your own universe. Today would be a day where you would yield your life unto God and say, God, if, if everything I give to you, it wouldn't be enough because look what you've given to me. You should talk to somebody today. You should definitely give your life wholly to the Lord today. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you. God, because I know, I know how cluttered I can be at the end of a year. I'm more cluttered now than at any other time. I don't feel like it's any time to invest in anyone. I've got so much I'm trying to think about. I've got so much that's before me. I've got so much that I've got to get done. I'm sinking here. I'm taking on water there. This thing's over here is on fire. I'm taking hits over here. There's just too much to think about my neighbor, too much to think about my kids, too much to think about my kids' friends, too much to, just too much. But Lord, I know that makes me perfect for mission. I know that you've shown us in this last little bit of Acts and you've shown us in the gospel how you'll do brilliant things. Brilliant things, powerful things, majestic things through very weak people when they find themselves in very weak moments. Lord, that we would not elevate our own ability, but we would elevate your ability to be majestic when we are weak. That we would make use of of every moment, not because it pleases you, but because you are pleased with us and because we are free to invest because you are totally in control. Today, you are in control. I can make good use of every moment and invest in every direction because you are in control. We love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.